0: Good morning. It's 830 on Wednesday, October 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Democratic lawmakers are hearing research that says failure to expand Medicaid is costing lives. We'll talk about it. Then hear from a Republican legislator who says Medicaid expansion isn't the answer. Find out what he wants to do instead. And after a Southern Remedy Health Minute, find out how a Delta Elementary school can go from an F to an A in a single year. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Democrats are holding hearings about the benefits of expanding Medicaid ahead of the November 5th general election. House Democrat Jarvis Dorch of Jackson says studies show expanding the health care program provides more preventive health care and better access to medical services. He says this is an issue voters should care about.
1: Voters are going to be going to the polls, and this is one of the things they're going to be choosing. They're going to be choosing between candidates that want to expand Medicaid and expand health care access across the state of Mississippi and some people running who don't want to do that.
0: At a hearing at the Capitol yesterday, lawmakers heard from Sarah Miller. She's a public policy professor at the University of Michigan. She talked with our Desiree Frazier about her newest research on the impact of the Affordable Care Act and what happens in states like Mississippi that don't expand Medicaid.
1: We saw a lot of benefits to Medicaid expansion in our state. Um, first of all, when we looked at the financial well-being of people who enrolled in Medicaid, we saw that it really improved around the time they were able to enroll. So we saw Decreases in the number of unpaid bills in their credit report, decreases in, you know, the propensity to go uh, over their credit card limit, decreases in bankruptcies and um, judgments on their credit report. So we saw a lot of benefits on the um, side of the enrollees. And then um, other analysis by some of my colleagues at the University of Michigan looked at the state's fiscal position, and they saw that actually Medicaid was saving the state money, Um, the Medicaid expansion was saving the state money because it, for a a large number of programs that were previously being paid for by the state started being covered by the Medicaid program with a very generous federal match. So it ended up being um, a fiscal winner for us in Michigan. When did you expand? We expanded in um, 2014, April of 2014.
2: Oh, so you expanded early.
1: Yeah, so we've been able to sort of reap the benefit of this expansion for several years now.
2: What, what happened to your rural hospitals? Did they benefit?
1: Um, well, I haven't myself looked at that data. Some of my colleagues have looked and found that the hospitals in Michigan were receiving higher revenues because of the expansion, and they were spending less in terms of uncompensated care. So I don't know specifically about the rural hospitals, but it looked like hospitals in general were benefiting. What about
2: jobs? Did you find that more jobs were created?
1: There are some studies out there that have found higher, not specifically in Michigan, but looking at all expansion states, have found that there's more hiring going on as a result of the Medicaid expansion. So particularly hiring of people like nurse practitioners or physician assistants, it looks like there are more job postings going out there. And I know of at least some early stage research that finds more hiring of uh, hospital employees as well.
2: What about training? Someone asked about training people to go into the healthcare field.
1: You know, I don't know that in Michigan, at least, that we've done anything to engage in more training. At least if we have, I don't know of it. Um, As I mentioned in the hearing, um, one of our big concerns around the time that we were thinking about expanding was whether or not we would have enough doctors to meet this demand. So there was a lot of um, research done up front to see if we were going to be able to absorb this new demand, and it turns out that we were able to do that. Um,
2: Dr. Miller. In terms of health care, is the health of people in Michigan better?
1: Yeah, so we looked, with some of my co-authors, we looked at the effect of the expansion on mortality rates, particularly for disadvantaged people who are older ages, between the age of 55 and 64. And we saw some pretty clear evidence that the mortality rates in expansion states were going down Um, pretty substantially. So uh, about a 9% reduction in mortality for this group, which for Mississippi would mean about 135 fewer deaths per year, or potentially 675 deaths that could have been averted if Mississippi expanded in 2014 at the same time that many other states did.
2: So does that mean that Mississippians are dying without this Medicaid expansion?
1: Our, Our analysis shows that the mortality rate would be lower if Mississippi expanded. So Yes, I, I guess. How do you make that correlation? Well, what we did was we looked at the trends in mortality for this group in states that expanded and states that didn't expand. And we looked at what the trends looked like before any expansions occurred, and we found that they were very, very similar. And then once the state expanded, that's when we started seeing the difference. So we weren't just comparing expansion states to non-expansion states. We were looking over time at the trend and seeing if there was a change in the trend or a change in the trajectory around the time of the expansion.
2: Your thoughts on Mississippi expanding Medicaid?
1: I think there are a lot of benefits to the Medicaid expansion. There's benefits in terms of people's financial well-being, there's benefits in terms of um, higher revenue for hospitals and providers, and there's also health benefits. Um, Given that the federal government is going to pay for a large percentage of the costs associated with the expansion, it seems like a no-brainer to me, but it's going to be up to your legislatures.
2: Did Michigan incur any costs?
1: Well, a small percentage of the Medicaid expansion is paid for by the state. But as I mentioned, Michigan had other programs that we were paying for entirely, on our own that now got covered by the federal government. So the last analysis that I saw of the budget situation was that we actually ended up making money on the Medicaid expansion rather than it costing us money.
0: Sarah Miller is assistant professor of public policy at the University of Michigan. Coming up, hear from a Republican legislator who says Medicaid expansion isn't the answer. Find out what he wants to do instead. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. With all the resistance to Medicaid expansion, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, however you want to put it, You might be surprised to learn that a growing number of Mississippi Republicans favor some kind of government involvement in making health care available to the working poor. That's the group of people most affected by non-expansion of Medicaid. It's people who are too poor to buy private insurance. Their jobs don't offer such benefits and they make too much money to qualify for Medicaid. House Republican Tracy Arnold of Boonville says he's against Medicaid expansion, but he tells our Desiree Frazier he has a plan to cover the working poor.
3: you know I worked on a piece of legislation uh, during the uh, two thousand nineteen session and I titled it the small business benefit incentive act that piece of legislation would have allowed our small business owners and employees that could not afford insurance to tap into the state insurance pool and or purchase a uh, private policy where the premiums could be subsidized by some sort of a government funding which could be utilized as Part of a Medicaid-type expansion, but it would allow them to have private insurance instead of Medicaid itself with the managed care involvement and so forth. And saying that, talking to our, some of our local hospitals and administrators in the northeast part of the state, some of them have mentioned to us that um, the Medicaid expansion would not save our rural hospitals due to the fact that often Medicaid's reimbursement rate is a lot lower than what it costs for them to provide the services to the patients and clientele. So if you expand that in itself, it would actually financially hurt the hospitals and uh, put them in a bad financial place.
2: Your plan, it's like a separate plan, kind of an offshoot for Medicaid.
3: Correct, correct. You know, and the the sector of our society that lacks insurance and, uh, and Medicaid, for lack of another term, is often just the working poor sector, the people that are still working, but they don't, uh, you know, garner enough income to purchase a private or any other insurance on their own. So that really should be the target area of trying to uh, fulfill the needs of our our state's uh, constituents.
2: What do you think is the reason that your bill didn't pass?
3: When I first started working on my bill, it was, it was it was a Medicaid expansion type bill. But then we soon discovered that, you know, expanding Medicaid itself with the other entities that are involved that are absorbing a lot of the funds, such as the managed care companies in Mississippi, then the money that's uh, appropriated toward health care for the citizens of our state would not be uh, actually all going to our citizens in our state. So we can get a bigger bang for our buck by a hybrid plan like this than we could with some sort of a full-blown Medicaid expansion.
2: So you're saying the money goes to the managed care providers, not to the patients? I'm saying that the managed
3: care providers are absorbing a a large amount of the money at administrative cost, and they're also uh, often not uh, approving some of the testing that some of our constituents need in the area to uh, to protect their health due to the monetary uh, desire to... uh, profit.
2: Would Medicaid expansion work in this state? Under the current
3: system, I think it could work, but I don't believe it would work as efficiently uh, nor as effectively as something else.
2: Do you think that's why Medicaid expansion has not passed? What what do you think is the reason that it's never made it through the legislature?
3: Well, it's like any other piece of legislation. You can have something that sounds like a brilliant idea, but you know, there's there's often opposition from certain areas and multiple areas in many cases. So it's just typical of a piece of legislation in Mississippi or any other state.
2: Will you be offering any type of legislation regarding health care this next legislative session 2020? Yes, it,
3: it is my, uh, my desire to offer that piece of legislation again. Um, the Small Business Benefit Incentive Act was the title of that legislation and uh, allow the small business owners and the working people in Mississippi to have an option to have health care that they can utilize, which think- would be affordable and also retain the uh, the option to, to choose their providers and their physicians.
2: Do you think there's the will to pass at this time? What will you do differently? I
3: think there's going to be more of a look at trying to uh, and trying to uh, address these situations Uh, And there again, you know, the the thing is we need to make sure that the money that's appropriated to take care of the health care of our citizens in our state is utilized to the best uh, of its ability to meet those needs and not just squandered away. And I'll share a short story with you really briefly if you want me to. Someone with a medical billing of a local physician called me. And they said, uh, Representative Arnold, we need you to do something to help us. The doctor has a 7-year-old child that he uh, says has the classic signs of a brain tumor. But One of the uh, managed care companies will not approve them doing a brain scan on the child, a CT-type scan. And uh, can you call? Can you do? Is there anything you can do? So I called the, the company, and, and finally I got them to approve doing the scan. And the child did have a brain tumor. Of course, I can't call any names of the physician or the patient due to the HIPAA regulations and that kind of thing. But it made me realize something. How many people out there don't know who to call or anyone to call to help move these folks forward to providing the health care that we need? The physician wanted to provide it, you know, and to help the child. But the uh, managed care company in this particular case did not uh, want to approve it. And undoubtedly, that was probably because the more money they retained, the more money that they uh, can garner as a profit themselves. So I'm really concerned about going down that road any further because I'm concerned about the health care of Mississippians.
2: Representative Tracy Arnold from Bloomville, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this.
0: Thank you. Coming up, find out how a Delta Elementary school can go from an F to an A in a single year. That's after a Southern Remedy Health Minute. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
4: I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, and this is a Southern Remedy Health Minute.
5: I walk for about an hour a day every day. I was taking
3: Crestor for years. No side effects whatsoever. My doctor and I transitioned me to a generic. After two or three days, I went for my walk, and the leg cramping was so bad that my neighbor had to drive out and pick me up. If the generic has the exact same ingredients as the Crestor, I don't understand why I'm getting this.
4: You know, we have two types of medications. We have brand name, and then we also have uh, generic medications. And sometimes, uh, to save money, most of the times we go from the brand name to the generic. It's the same active ingredient, but the change is how is it packaged in that pill? So what are the fillers? When you go to a generic, you still have to have the concentration of that medication but how it's delivered may be a little bit different. So if your doctor says, hey, I want to switch you to a generic, I wouldn't balk at it completely. It may save you some medication and do exactly the same thing. But there are some that do cause problems. It's it's how it's made. It's made a little bit differently, and sometimes that can change in individual people how it's metabolized and uh, the effects of it. I would say if you can afford it, go back to the to the regular Crestor because it's going to do the same thing into lowering your risk. Or maybe try Lipitor or generic Lipitor. For more health tips and medical information, listen to Southern Remedy each weekday morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio.
0: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Armstrong Elementary School in Greenville can now call itself an A-rated school. But at this time last year, Armstrong was failing. But how can the school go from F-rated to A-rated in just one year? MPB's Alexandra Watts spoke with Greenville Superintendent Deborah Dace and Armstrong Principal Yolanda Johnson. Superintendent Dace starts the conversation.
6: This year, Armstrong received an A-rating. The 2017-18 school year, we were rated an F, so that's a dramatic change for us.
7: What are some of the things that changed from them? That's a huge jump. That's not like F to D or even F to C. That's F to the highest level possible. We
6: looked at personnel, we had to make sure that the right people were in the right places so that we could move forward once we recognized that everybody was where they should be. uh, We focused on our data and we made some instructional changes to help us move from the F to the A.
7: Did that mean any changes with teachers or how did it go from different levels, from getting parents engaged to maybe doing something with students to teachers? How did that all go?
6: Uh, We wanted to be transparent. We weren't trying to hide the fact that we were a failing school, so of course we enlisted parents to help us out. Uh, We had parent meetings. We were trying to get the parents more involved in actually coming to the school to see what the children were working on, to see how they could help them at home. So parents played a major part in that, plus making sure teachers were trained on how to break down their data, not just looking at the numbers and percentages, but knowing how to take that data and uh, intervening where necessary, giving students those interventions that they needed to show success academically.
7: Before um, the letter grade came out, because I know those were just released, did you feel like a difference or a change when you were here during 2018 to 2019? Did you feel like that year was going to be different?
6: Yes, I felt that the teachers bought more into the plan, we got them more involved in the action plan. It wasn't just the principal making a plan and nobody was following it. So we, um, our leadership team became stronger and they became active participants in the uh, transformation that took place.
7: What do you think are some misconceptions people might have when they see that letter grade assigned to a school or a district? If they see an F or an A, I think they might have automatic assumptions. But what would you say to people looking beyond for both the school and the district?
6: I think the biggest misconception is that people think that Armstrong is a school full of straight A students and that's a misconception because what happened was the students Performed so so poorly the year before that they couldn't do anything but grow basically. So the growth is what really catapulted us up to the A. Yes, and sometimes um, they
8: just question, uh, is that really an A uh, school? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, as Miss Johnson just mentioned, uh, the growth is is what really pushed um, the level forward. The challenge is this year is that. We're going to have to maintain, students are going to have to maintain, teachers are going to have to maintain their efforts and push that much harder because now you've reached the height of your growth. Mm-hmm. So how do you grow even farther um, to meet those growth goals? And so proficiency uh, is a is a target area this year. Um, this school, as uh, she mentioned, is a grade one through five school. So we still have those students who returned are those um, those fourth and fifth grade students. The fifth graders from last year, they've moved on to the middle school. And so uh, we have a new set of third graders, um, but we have our returning fourth and fifth graders. So teachers are, and and Ms. Johnson, they're working diligently with them to make sure that the focus is on proficiency, but also maintaining that growth.
7: What does this mean for the district then? Um,
8: How do you hope that other schools in the district kind of raise their letter grades too? Right, and so we've had conversations about if if it can be done at Armstrong. Definitely, uh, we can do it at our other schools. And so we're sharing experiences, sharing uh, the best practices that uh, took place here at Armstrong. Um, also, reaching out to see what ha- what is taking places at the other schools and see how we can connect and and make those make it happen at the other schools, but realizing that. If it can happen at Armstrong, that is part of the Greenville Public School District. Um, same kids, we can make it happen at our other schools. So it is, right now, it's it's a realistic uh, goal.
0: Greenville Superintendent Deborah Days and Armstrong Principal Yolanda Johnson. So it seems the skepticism of Armstrong's F to A leap is based in a potential of uh, potential misunderstanding, it turns out a school's overall accountability score isn't only based on proficiency. Instead, for some schools, a big part of that score is based on improvement. Alan Burrow from the Mississippi Department of Education explains.
5: Elementary schools have components of proficiency and growth. We look at proficiency in math, reading, language arts, and science. And then additionally, we look at growth of all students in the school in uh, math and reading language arts and growth of the lowest performing students in math and reading language arts. And each of those um, components are added together to get a component score. So we take a score from each component and add those together and the component score is then tied to a grading scale that we use for elementary schools.
7: Is it common for a school to have, or maybe not is it common for a school to like go from an A to an F or an F to an A, but in looking at the elementary schools, how common would you say it is for those schools to change letter grades um, year by year?
5: Well, it's common to see letter grade changes from year to year. Uh, Certainly, we see um, schools that do change um, more drastically um, from year to year than others. Uh, it does happen where we have schools that go from an F to an A. Uh, generally, we see uh, two to three of those uh, in a given accountability year. Um, uh, and then, of course, we have schools that go from D to A as well. Um, generally, less than uh, schools that you would see that just change from one-letter grade, for example.
7: What are some misconceptions that sometimes you hear um, about how the final letter grade, the accountability score, um, what are some misconceptions surrounding that?
5: Uh, I think it's important um, that people know that that letter grade um, can be attributed both uh, to high rates of proficiency um, or high rates of growth or high rates of improvement in the school.
7: When looking at the final grade, let's say someone gets like 300 points, and 300 points means you get an A. Is there like a set scale like that, or does it just vary year by year?
5: Yes, there is a set scale. Um, the The grading scale that we're working from now um, has not changed from last year, uh, and uh, there is a grading scale for districts. Uh, a separate one for elementary and middle schools, and then another one for high schools.
0: Alan Burrow of the Mississippi Department of Education with MPB's Alexandra Watts. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it.